This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. 95 minutes of attack versus defence at St James's Park ends up with Newcastle in the Champions League. To be fair to Leicester, they did have a shot in the 92nd minute and a point isn't bad for them. They are not relying on Spurs at the weekend. Who would do that? But still need Bournemouth to do them a favour at Everton. We'll discuss Eddie Howe's incredible achievement and again try to get the balance right between how he's managed to bring a togetherness to a squad that have played above themselves without avoiding the tricky stuff about where the money comes from. We'll discuss the racist abuse of Vinicius Jr. in Spain and the reaction from the authorities. Is this a pivotal moment or is that just wishful thinking? Juve got their 15 points back and now have 10 taken away. There's a mailbag with questions on time-wasting, soccer Saturday, high performance in school and whether any of us even like football. All that on today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, John Bruin, welcome. Hi, Max. Hello, Johnny Lou. Hi. And hello, Barry Glendenning. Hello, Max. Uh, let's start at St James's Park, then Newcastle nil, Leicester nil. Newcastle into the Champions League. Uh, Leicester City, a point closer to survival or the championship. Hard to work out at, at this stage. Um, what did you make of the game, Barry? I thought it was incredibly one-sided. I thought Leicester were quite lucky and maybe a little unlucky insofar as I think, and others are welcome to disagree with me, I think Bruno Kimmerer's should have been sent off within what was it eight nine minutes for that awful challenge on Bubakara Sumare, which yeah I'm, I'm baffled that wasn't a red. But as I say, other opinions are probably available. And yeah, Newcastle hit the woodwork three times. So watching it actually, I think we need a new metric like XW expected woodwork. Insofar as you know. Some shots glance the outside of the post, some thump off the inside of the post and roll across the line and don't go in and or hit the crossbar and thump down, but don't cross the line. So they should have you know, a higher XW than one you know that scrapes the paint on the outside, that, that kind of thing. But yeah, Newcastle hit the woodwork three times. Uh, I suppose any other night, they probably would have won quite easily. And then Leicester almost uh, nicked it at the end from a, the unlikely source that is, I always call him Thomas Castagne, that is, that's the rugby player, Timothy Castagne. And what a three points, what a win that would have been for them, but it wasn't to be. So a draw, I'm not going to say is a fair result because Newcastle were, you know, obviously the better team. But uh, it's it's a point, you know, it's not in Leicester's hands, but it, it leaves it more in their hands than it might have been. Mm. I, I guess without sending off, John, and I'm minded to agree with Barry, that he, he kind of places his studs on the thigh, doesn't he? He doesn't, like, push through. It's just kind of, this is where they're going to be for a short amount of time. And then, so I can kind of see why it wasn't overturned. Yeah, there was some there was some discussion where, uh, well, now we know this, obviously, after uh, last week's expose, that the commentators can hear what the VAR is saying, that it wasn't considered reckless because of, probably, because it wasn't that full downward pressure on uh, his knee. I mean, it looked, and it's one of those, again, uh, and I never know I never know whether this clears things up or not. It's like, can we see that in real time? That's always the phrase that's used, isn't it? 
Now, you know, if you see that in real time, it still looked like a really bad tackle to me. And let's play the um, the game of orange cards at that point. I would suggest it was it was naughty. Probably should have been sent off. Um, might I introduce that uh, I saw a new tactical innovation in this game, uh, a variation in, of get it launched, which was get it launched off the field was uh, Leicester's tactic for most of this game. It appeared to me not even going, you know, not even like hoofing it forward for the big man, uh, which was Ian actually wasn't it for for the start of the game. It was just getting it smashed wherever from very early. Get it lost. Get it lost because it was just. Get it lost. And I suppose, I mean, we've had this debate on the pod and I've had this debate with Newcastle fans myself. It's it's making Newcastle hurry up, which is something that they may be not comfortable with after the uh, tactics of this season that they've employed. Dean Smith seemed happy enough, didn't he, with a point here because it gives them a chance. And I suppose it's one of those things that managers always say, don't they? Uh, if you... T- if you um, Gave me the, you know, took to me into the last game of the season, uh, and we've got a chance of staying up. I'd have bitten your hand off, and uh, maybe Dean Smith is without a hand after last night because getting it launched in that fashion or getting it lost. Um, talking of getting it lost, uh, was uh, <laughs> talking of getting lost. Max has disappeared, but yes, successful-ish for Leicester. But yeah, they could have got it at the end. What do we do now? Max is gone. This is, yeah. this is this is my worst nightmare on Talksport. Just Max suddenly disappearing. <laughs> it's not it's not as easy as it looks, is it? And I have returned. Uh, hopefully, it's good news for the uh, other people on the Zoom call. Uh, on the on that subject of Leicester, Rich says, "Is it a good idea to have an XG of naught in a must-win game at half-time?" Um, what did you make of their approach, Johnny? Well, I don't think they deliberately set out to to have no shots or, or, you know, one shot. Uh, in fact, you know, you could argue that if Castagna's goal goes in at the very end, then then that approach has, has paid off. And not only that, it's probably worth putting a bet on Leicester to win next season's title. Um, I think, you know, they, they didn't, they clearly didn't, they defended very well. Uh, they didn't play the ball out uh, as well as they could. And I think that the fact that, you know, you don't have Madison, you don't have Barnes from the start, um, plays into that a little bit um but you know they, they they defended really well and i think that the danger against newcastle is that they can they can just sweep you away it's that kind of um it's not only the physicality but it's the wall of noise and 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 it's the it's the way they could have they can combine you know down the flanks and and you know they can they can just cut cut you open in a, in a few minutes and i think you would probably take a point at st james's park like on a as, as a kind of an objective viewpoint it's not a bad result, and you, you, you kind of Everton. Everton aren't going to win, are they? You can't. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not like Everton are going to win or anything. So, uh, so uh, you know, I, I th- it, it almost keeps it in their hands. Which is, I mean, they, they basically had to keep it out of Leeds' hands, which I think is, was was the main issue. Now, look, Newcastle United are in the Champions League. It's such a huge team, Freddie Howe, Barry, and we sort of may have mocked, you know, like his team photos after like a, I don't know, a random draw in, in December. And, you know, Jason, that Twitter account with Jason Tindall sort of being centre of attention everywhere. But, and how has proved this before, he has an incredible ability to get everybody pulling in exactly the same direction. Yeah, I'm not sure how it is he does that, but he does. Um, 
by all accounts a very hard worker, uh, very diligent, his a lot of attention to the tiniest details, but then I guess there's a hell of a lot of managers who do that but just don't do it as well. And it was there was an inevitability that Newcastle would start, you know, would qualify for the Champions League at some point, but they've done it ahead of schedule, I would argue, and I probably didn't envisage them qualifying for the Champions League with a team that had players like Jacob Murphy and Sean Longstaff and Dan Byrne as, you know, more or less staples. And uh, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Obviously, he has spent a lot of money. He's brought in some class players. The job he's done with Joe Linton has been remarkable, just transforming him from a pretty hapless striker into a brilliant midfielder who now is chipping in with quite regularly with goals. You know, to use a cliche, it's like having a new signing and a very good new signing. So he deserves a hell of a lot of credit for that. Mm. And improves players as well, John. I I wonder where he sh- where they should be, where that squad of players should be finishing. Like realistically, eighth? I don't know. Yeah, you sort of look at them around, let's say their ability level is probably about the same as, say, Aston Villa's at, at the moment. Uh, you know, you compare... The- Maybe the strikers. Obviously, Alexander Isak was the player they brought in, who is yeah, a striker wanted around Europe, considered one of Europe's most talented players. Who, I mean, funny enough, has not always been the central figure, despite that. And that's actually, I think, that's reasonably good management by Eddie Howe, which is just not like here you are, you're the star man, off you go. He's managed someone like Isak slowly into the team, and obviously he had injuries earlier in the season. It's dangerous to always use Spurs as as a gauge for anything. I think we all all here recognise that. But I think it was back in October I saw Newcastle at Spurs and they beat them, if not comprehensively, but they beat them well. And at that point I thought, yes, here's a team there. And I think in uh, Joe Linton and Bruno Guimaraes, although I do think that Bruno's um, performances have dropped off a little bit, a bit the second half of the season, he always seems to be injured, actually. Every game, doesn't he always have like a, you know, there's a... I, I think he's been playing through the pain barrier with a, an ongoing ankle or foot yeah. issue. But he, he's not been as good as he was, but Joe Linton has been outstanding all season. But when those two were at their absolute peak together, you you saw why Newcastle would be a very difficult team to beat. Um, I don't think Eddie Howe's um, talent as a manager has ever really been in, in any doubt... Uh, because he did such a great job with Bournemouth. And he obviously has this um, collective collegiate spirit that he engenders with players. And that idea of him bringing through players that you wouldn't expect to uh, perform at that level, if you remember, when he was at Bournemouth, he had a load of players that had played two, three divisions below who looked perfectly serviceable Premier League players. So, you know, I mean... Amidst everything, you have to accept that Eddie Howe, even though he might not be uh, a character that everyone takes to heart, because there is a certain coldness to him. There's a certain, I'm not going to say, is it it smugness? But it's a certain self-satisfaction. You can't argue with his qualities as a coach and what he's achieved. Yeah, and actually, Johnny, I thought you described it quite well. It's not like scintillating football, but it's exciting football. It reminds me a bit of of Fergie United in a way, not quite that good but it's not like really intricate 
but it just sort of has this momentum and this sort of power to it with lots of skillful players. I think Trippier is such a lovely footballer and amongst others. Um, so you can see why is you know it's sort of gripping to watch. Yeah. So I mean, I, I think I mentioned this on, on the pod before, but during the eighteen months that he was out of work, Eddie Howe went to um, he went to shadow Diego Simeone at Atletico, and I think. Atletico is a really, really good parallel for what he's tried to do at, at Newcastle. You know, partly it's the partly it's the way they play, which is you know, which is built on solidity, but also kind of you know, quick transitions and and essentially trying to try to overwhelm teams. Uh, try to you know, essentially out running them off the pitch, battling them off the pitch, and then taking your chances when when you get them. And and the you know the other part of it is almost embracing that kind of anti-hero identity. And I think there's something quite interesting, you know, almost quite canny about it. They are not going to, they're not ever, ever again going to be anybody's second favourite club. Newcastle are not going to be loved by a neutral side, sorry, by a neutral fan, uh, as long as they are being controlled by the public um, investment fund of Saudi Arabia. And... It's worth it's worth embracing that, I think, from, from from their point of view. He's basically said, you know, I, I don't know what he said, but it looks like what he's done is said, look, everyone is against us, and in, in much the same way that you know you imagine a Simeone might do. Uh, the only people we can trust are in this dressing room or whatever in this club, and you know, everyone out there is a bastard, so you just have to be a bigger bastard. They have played a lot like Atletico this season, and and if if they are going to kind of lean into this. Everybody's everybody's most hated club. Uh, that's probably a more realistic uh, assessment of of how people are going to are, are going to see them than what Manchester City are trying to do, which is you know basically desperate to desperate for everyone to love them. Yeah, I, I agree, with Johnny. That's a very good point. I would be interested to see uh, if Eddie Howe does go full Simeone. You know, uh, maybe grows the hair out a bit, goes a bit more berserk. Tight mode. trousers, yeah, berserk. Does a lot of cojones signs, yeah. You know, maybe maybe that's Jason's job in all this. I don't know, but Possible. it's yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just going to say that is a good point because when you have these clubs that are owned by people that okay, we we don't approve of, why not just go for the dark side and just say, hey, we're the bad guys, come and take us down because. Yeah, I think one of Manchester City's biggest problems is like all this stuff about why aren't you happy for us? Well, that's not how it works, lads. You may as well just be nasty and try and take us down. I suppose nobody likes anybody who's got loads of money and successful, even if the money comes from you know a sort of benevolent, you know, even if I don't know, suddenly get the estate of Gandhi bought a team, you know, like if they had loads <laughs> of money, people would still sort of dislike them. But yeah. as usual, yesterday, Barry, we got criticised for talking about City's owners too much and not enough. <laughs> and I just wonder, like, on the international TV coverage, there was literally no mention of the ownership at all, right? Apart from they've got loads of money. I don't know what it was like on on Sky. And I just wonder, do you think broadcasters don't cover it because it's not what fans want? You know, I even worry sometimes that listeners, our listeners don't want it. And if we don't have listeners, that's a slight, a slight issue for us, right? We're constantly, we were just saying before the pod, it's quite hard to talk about it every time because there's no new angle really on on the human rights issues in, in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I guess there are, you know, different stories each week, but it's the same principle, right? And I suppose on moments like this, you should address it because 
this is a seminal moment rather than just doing it after a normal victory over, I don't know, Southampton on a Tuesday night? Well, I suppose you have to put in, start with all the the major, I'm not sure caveats is quite the right word, but Newcastle fans have no control over who owns their club. The people who are the public face of the ownership, Amanda Staveley, her husband, uh, Jamie Rubin, Newcastle fans adore them. And to be fair to them, they haven't really put a foot wrong in terms of transfers and all that. And I think a lot of people expected it to be, you know, Chelsea-esque or even worse. I think last night, was it at halftime, Jamie Rubin and, and Stavely's husband had uh, some sort of penalty challenge or crossbar challenge or something for a charity to raise money for a food bank. And lots of Newcastle fans, you know, they, they challenged each other on Twitter and lots of Newcastle fans thought it was great and, you know, what, what lovely people and they're really getting into the spirit of things. A few other Newcastle fans made the point that Jamie Rubin's a major donator to the Tory party who are responsible for the fact that there are food banks in Newcastle and everywhere else. So, you know, why do this kind of crass stunt? And that's it in a nutshell. Some Newcastle fans just don't care about their ownership. Others do, and they have reservations, but they love the club. And I've gone down such a cul-de-sac now, I can't really remember what your original question was. <laughs> it was just sort of how to, how to cover it, how to keep covering it, why major broadcast. I mean, Johnny, why do you think the major broadcasters don't? I mean, match of the day, when it first announced, I remember Alan Shearer saying, big questions need to be asked. And and maybe match of the day, I mean, that's not really the place to do it, is it? Is it? I don't know. Because when you sort of, when you go down the list of abuses, it feels like it's really important. Like it's really important. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first point is that owners, owners, and ownership, ownerships are probably the most important people in football. Certainly, more important than you know, coaches or sporting directors. Um, they, the, the the owner is the most important person at a football club, as, as the one who can determines what what kind of club they're going to be, what size of club they're going to be. The other, yeah, the, the other part of it is, I think that you know, I think we spend a lot of time on this pod, like talking about whether we should, you know, whether we should talk about things or how we should talk about this. Obviously, we should talk about ownership. You know, obviously, we should talk about where where the money comes from, not to the exclusion of everything else. And I think if you're if you're match of the day or if you're, if you're BT Sport and you're actually you are showing a football game, you're broadcasting a football game, and, and your your program is about you know that game. I think your your priorities are going to be slightly different to uh, to a pod like ours, which has no live footage, if any, to 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 speak of, and is is much more about analysis and. And talking, you know, around the issues. So it's not to say that it's right not to mention it at all, but I, I just think they don't go on about it on match of the day like we do, and I, I think that's probably fair enough. And I think you made the point as well, Max, recently that a lot of the people involved in these broadcasts are former footballers, recently retired footballers who just can't be bothered, don't want the aggravation of. Uh, having to discuss the things that might lead to them being the victims of a Twitter pylon or some sort of backlash. And, you know, that's kind of understandable. 
yes, I don't disagree with any of that. And uh, um, we will keep talking about it. And Johnny, I'll keep asking if we should keep talking about it and asking if we should be asking about whether we should keep talking about it. Um, <laughs> anyway, that'll be for part one. Part two, uh, we will start with a discussion about Vinicius Jr. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, let's talk about the racist abuse of Vinicius Jr. and how it has been or not been dealt with in Spain. Uh, quite a lot of, to cover before I open it up. From Sid's piece in The Guardian, there were 20 minutes left when Vinicius pointed at a Valencia fan behind the goal saying, you, you, yes, you, telling teammates that the man there had called him a monkey. He did this, Vinicius said, imitating an ape gesture, hands tucked under his armpits. Alongside him, Lucas Vasquez confronted the fans, shitty racists. The referee spoke to Vinicius, explaining the protocol, asking him to trust him. First, an announcement's made over the loudspeaker, and then he told Vinicius, if it happens a second time, we leave. Thibaut Courtois told him it had happened in the first half too, and Vinicius was ready to go already. The PA announcement warning the game could be suspended was met with whistles. After the game, Vinicius Jr. posted on social media, the championship that once belonged to Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Cristiano and Messi today belongs to racists. It wasn't the first time, nor the second, nor the third. Racism is normal in La Liga. The competition thinks it's normal. The federation does too, and opponents encourage it. A beautiful nation which welcomed me, which I love, but which agreed to export the image of a racist country to the world. I'm sorry for the Spaniards who don't agree, but today in Brazil, Spain is known as a country of racists. The La Liga president, Javier Tebas, posted a reply on Twitter shortly after the game, uh, which he said, we've, ex- we've tried to explain what La Liga can do in cases of racism to you, but you have not shown up for either of the two agreed dates that you requested yourself. Before criticising and insulting La Liga, it's necessary that in- you inform yourself properly at Finney Jr. Do not let yourself be manipulated and make sure you fully understand each other's competencies and the work we've been doing together, which, which Johnny, it appears at best completely tone deaf from Javier Tebas. It was tone deaf. It was it was not really surprising. The problem being that, I mean, I, I, I remember talking to Sid about this two or three months ago when I was writing a column about Vinicius and, and the racist abuse he was getting. And, you know, he said... Spain is Spain is yeah just 20 25 years behind a lot of other european countries on this it is not as taboo to be racist in spain you know as as it is here you know it, here i think at the very least if you were found to be making monkey charts at a football uh, at a footballer there would be there would be some disapproval i think from the people around you i think we've reached that point now there would certainly be uh people saying you shouldn't have a job anymore. You should be out of a job. I don't think we're. I don't think we're at that point in Spain yet. And obviously, that is something that comes from the very top of the establishment. You know, the, the top line for me here is that racism is this this huge, it's this huge thing, and and it encompasses so many different areas and affects so many different people. And this is this this is the very like very thin end of the wedge. Literally, the most famous. The best footballer in Spain, one of the greatest footballers in the world, is getting monkey charts, and there are still people saying, "Ah, oh, this isn't a thing. This isn't. This isn't bad." If you can't prosecute this thing, one of the most powerful footballers in the world, and play for one of the most powerful clubs in the world, and you can't get anything done about that, what what hope have you had? What hope do you have of getting anything done about anything? You know, any of the bigger, more complex more like thornier issues 
He tweeted again last night, Vinicius Junior. Every round away from home is an unpleasant surprise. There were many this season, death wishes, hang dolls, many criminal screams, all registered. But the speech always falls on isolated cases. A fan. No, these are not isolated cases. They're continuous episodes spread across several cities in Spain uh, and even on a TV programme. The evidence is there in video. Now I ask how many of these racists had names and photos exposed on websites I answer to make it easier, zero. What is missing to criminalise these people and punish clubs accordingly? Why don't sponsors charge La Liga? The problem is very serious. Communications no longer work. Not blaming me to justify criminal acts either. You are not football. You are inhuman. Is it naive, John, do you think this is a, this could be an important pivotal moment? Like the, the level of scrutiny being placed on La Liga right now feels stronger than I've seen it before. Vinicius is rightly not backing down at all. I think the Brazilian government have got involved. The Christ the Redeemer statue was 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 it not lit up or something like that as their sign of supporting Vinicius Junior? Or do you think, like a lot of cases, and not just cases, they're cases, you know, here and across Europe, it'll just go away again because there'll be another football match? I'm reminded of, uh, and it may almost be almost 20 years ago, uh, there was that thing where Luis Aragonés. Uh, we refer we use a racial epithet, should we call it, for Thierry Henry, and that was quite regarded as quite shocking here. Uh, and we and uh, Jonathan said, you know, we're 20, 25 years ahead. The the thing is, you mentioned La Liga's standing. I, I tuned in. Uh, there was a brief clip on Viaplay, who have the rights to um, La Liga in this country. A panel including Michel Salgado, I think, discussing this, and it's deeply embarrassing. For them to have to discuss racism now, they should discuss racism because it's going on in their league. But how good is you know the image of La Liga, as you say, Max, has been dragged through the mud by the behaviour of this, and also from what it appears and what Vinicius is saying is the refusal of the authorities to actually deal with this. Um, now, look at uh, what measures can you take? Now, look at say it's a different thing, but in Holland. Well, you've got this thing where anything is chucked on the pitch, the game's called off, and that's you know, and that's now disrupting their league to the point of discrediting their league. Well, could it not be that you take players off the pitch in Spain or something like that? But it appears to be La Liga has got into this position where, because Vinicius doesn't want to speak to Javier Tebas, it becomes this uh, ego battle rather than actual the issue at the heart of it, which is racism and the fact that. Uh, a black player should not be treated like that. Uh, and the fact that, as Jonathan says, probably the best player in La Liga is being treated like that. What does that say about La Liga? So Valencia appeared to have released more than one statement. The first one said Valencia wished to publicly condemn insults and attacks of all kinds in football. Um, it was quite long. One telling line was, while strongly denouncing these isolated incidents, Valencia would like to thank the more than 46,000 fans in attendance for their support for the team, which is a very sort of tiring last line, just placating the rest of the fan base. They released another statement last night. This was on Sky. In line with the club's permanent commitment against racism and violence in all forms, announced that the police has identified a fan who made racist gestures at Real Madrid's Vinicius Jr. Uh, in the game at the Mestalla on the 21st of May. The club are also working along with the police to confirm the identity of any other potential offenders. I mean, there are a lot of offenders if you watch the clip. Well, I mean, the thing is, Max, that... <laughs> There have been nine complaint, formal complaints made about racist abuse directed at Vinicius Jr. so far this season. So this, obviously, as he himself said, isn't an isolated incident. And 
even as he alighted from the team coach to enter the stadium, a group of fans had gathered to racially abuse him. That was the welcome he got to the Mestalla. So if, you know, will Valencia scapegoat isn't the right word, but, you know, they'll they'll identify one fan. Yeah, we caught you red-handed. He'll be prosecuted. And they'll say, yes, we've dealt with it. When there's clearly more than one guy involved. I mean, the problem doesn't seem to be just with La Liga, even when they try to to prosecute or, you know, get the law involved. The, The prosecutors drag their feet or decide not to press charges or decide there's no case to be answered. So it it seems to be a, a problem with with many roots. Mm. And actually, look, it's worth saying Romelu Lukaku suffered really similar stuff in, in Serie A. And important to suggest that, you know, racism is, is not a problem in the UK. We know it is still a problem. Fans do seem to be, as Johnny pointed out, incredibly emboldened at the moment in... La Liga. Um, La Liga said in a statement it would investigate and take appropriate legal action uh, if a hate crime was identified, calling on people to submit any relevant footage. While we're on fan behaviour, we actually had a few tweets and probably quite fairly asking us to cover the Azeg Altmar attacks on the West Ham players' families. Had it been the other way round, we might have covered it. I don't know if, if you agree, Baz, but I don't know if you've seen the pictures of Nolsey as he's known, this sort of heroic... Um, I mean, he must be in his 60s, mustn't he? Uh, West Ham fans sort of fending off uh, the Azad Alkmaar ultras. I mean, it's a potentially terrifying situation with this sort of quite sort of, I don't know, it's like it's not humorous, is it? But it's sort of quite incongruous sight of this just one old man just like beating off a mob. Yeah, it's like Michael Elphick taking on a group of orcs or something like that isn't it <laughs> absolutely right yeah it is boom <laughs> it's boom boom taking on the these... dutch horse yeah shocking incident really uh and they i think took their time to apologize didn't they there was there was all like two or three attempted apologies and then eventually yeah yeah sorry it's not the first time without my fans i think there was a was a game against dundee or something dundee united and there was a, there was there was a lot of trouble there with, with their ultras they're their ultras, their ultra section is, you know, is is, is quite notorious. They're you know for, for, for causing trouble in uh, within Holland. Uh, so uh, I don't know why that's been allowed to to continue. Bring it to East London, see how you get on then, lads. Eh? Well, I mean, I, I worry. I worry whether East East London is East London these days is a pretty soft place. It's yeah, that's true. Take the Westfield. Maybe. Yes, I was <laughs> I was representing East London for quite a while, and I'm not sure how well I I certainly wouldn't have been as good as Nolsey. I wouldn't have put myself. I'd have scuttled away like the coward that I am. Um, I mean, lots of like they, you know, there's T-shirts of Nolsey. There's even like a little doll of no, of, of Nolsey. I think if you press his stomach, it says, you know, West Ham are massive or something to to that effect. He got a sort of standing ovation at the stadium when he walked in at the pub. Uh, you know, it was uh, sort of slightly heartening, it, it, you know, within the sort of context of the guy having to defend himself from these. I, I, I presume there will be people who say, you know, we're, we're, we'll accuse us of glamorising this violence, but I'm, I'm not so. sure what Knowles is. very much like self-defence. Did he yeah. do, was he in the wrong in any way? I mean, he was defending the honour of, of, of his fellow fans and... 
you know, but blocking the stairwell and thou shalt not pass. Who's who is thou, thou shalt not pass? Is that Gandalf? This is Nolsey now, the West Ham Gandalf. Yeah, oh, wonderful. It's Helm's Deep, that is, isn't it? Uh, if, uh, if you in the eighties and nineties, didn't we used to call those a half a go hero? Yeah, that's yeah. what they used to be you're, called. You're, you don't. We don't recommend it, of course. But no, we're, we're not glorifying violence. We are saying he did quite a impressive job of fending off the horde of Alkmaar ultras. Uh, that Alkmaar apology that you referenced, John. While everyone hoped for a historic European match, it turned into a pitch black evening due to the events occurring at the referee's final whistle. It turned into a night to reflect on with shame. Not because of the football game played, but because of the behaviour of some attending. Unfortunately, we cannot use the word supporters for these people. What happened is beyond all bounds. The club against City apologises to West Ham and the thousands of well-minded AZ supporters who've also been inconvenienced by the misconduct. Uh, moving on, um, the will-they-won't-they they saga of Juve's point deduction is still ongoing. They were thrust back into the Champions League spots when they got their 15 points back. They've now been docked 10 points following a new investigation into the club's past transfer dealings. The points deduction doesn't seem to have been ideal preparation for their game against Empoli last night. They were 2-0 down after 20 minutes uh, and lost 4-1. Drops them down to 7th with two games remaining. Uh, pretty much guarantees no Champions League football for them next season. Unless, of course, their points are given back and then they have five points taken off them. And it's sort of like an episode of Turnabout uh, <laughs> with Rob Curling. Um, anyway, Nikki's on Zoom. We'll chat to her about... Uh, we'll chat, great we'll, reference. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good reference. Do you like that one? <laughs> Thank you so much. And the good thing about Turnabout was it, Rob Curling wasn't quite sure how many points anyone ever got. He'd be like, that's five, 10, 50, 20 points you've got there. Rob Rob presented Football Weekly a few times and we we asked we were all we wanted to talk about was turnabout. And he openly admitted that he had no idea what was going on, but a producer was telling him what to say in his ear and he just parroted that. But he he was in the dark as the rest of us. Mm. Producer Joel says, What is turnabout? So there is the oh, generation. God. Oh, oh no. So uh, to anyone twenty-one under Anyone under, I don't know. How old are you, Johnny? 37. I was. I 37. watched it as a kid. Lunchtime, I would say a BBC One lunchtime game show. With a, 95 and, or so. Yeah, and, you know, there was like, there was coloured, basically coloured spheres, coloured discs on a grid, and you had to, and you had to turn them your colour and, and make little rows of three and four, and you'd get, um, you'd get points for that. Um and the, was it was late? later parodied brilliantly on that Mitchell and Webb look. They had this sketch called Number Wang. Number Wang. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> was there a lake in, in the studio? I feel like there was a. I feel like there was a totally unnecessary pond in the middle of the. Um, I'm, I, I might oh, have to a check turnabout that. studio, a, a sort mm. of like a, a water feature in it. Oh, <laughs> <there> right. <laughs> a, lovely, a lovely idea. Uh, anyway, you remember. <laughs> Yeah, that'll do for uh, part two. Um, uh, part three, we'll do any other business. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Graham Souness is swimming the channel, um, uh, raising money to help people living with the rare skin condition epidermolysis bullosa. He was on BBC Breakfast. Um, uh, uh, he's been on a few TV and radio s stations. Um, and incredibly moved uh, by having become aware of the condition um, when meeting a 14-year-old girl called Isla. Uh, and he's aiming to raise 1.1 million for the Deborah charity, which supports Isla, and about 5,000 people in the UK currently live with the genetic condition. 
Um, it's an incredibly painful condition to do with the skin. Uh, he's swimming on June the 18th. Um, if you just Google Graham Souness and swim, that's probably the best way of finding the place to donate. But Barry, incredibly, what, I mean, so what wonderful thing to do. You sort of, I don't know if I expected Graham Souness to swim the channel for any particular reason, but uh, he has a heart, this guy. He does have a heart and he also has uh, a, a dicky heart, which, you know, because he's, he's had health issues himself in the past. Crikey. Um, I don't know what age is he? He's in well into his 60s. 70. 70. It was his 70th birthday, I think, the, almost the day that he announced that he was ret- returning from Sky. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like um, Graham Souness, and this is a brilliant thing and it just reminds me of, of an interview I saw with the absolute legend that is Kevin Sinfield who has obviously for anyone who might be listening abroad and doesn't know has, has raised millions and millions of pounds for motor neuron disease charities and for uh, to provide for the future of his best mate and former teammate Rob Burrow who's uh, got motor neuron disease. Uh, he's run these ultra marathons and put himself through hell to raise this money. And and in a recent interview, I saw him saying that you have to be seen to be suffering for people to dig deep and give you money. It has to hurt. And uh, I, I'd imagine Graham Souness is going to suffer as he swims the channel. And I hope it goes really well for him because it's quite something for anyone to take on let alone a 70 year old man be lovely for pogba to be pogba to be on, on the beach at calais waiting for him <laughs> with a towel i uh and they'd embrace and yeah. it would be it would be hot warming. yeah I, I mean he's a tough guy you know like one of those i don't know if he could like kick a ferry out the way could he really that's a big car ferry but you know do you still have to wear whale blubber to swim the channel i think they'd probably give you a wetsuit don't they at this stage at this i mean i, I, don't, I don't, you know because it grabs so strikes with someone who's quite i do I imagine whale blubber on on his uh her suit no. chest yeah hmm well look we'll find out i imagine in the fullness of time um uh, he's a vegan, apparently. So uh, no chance, says producer Joel. Um, so there we are. I don't think he is actually a vegan, is he? he? He said that he's tried the vegan diet. I think that's the case. Right, yeah. okay. Because he, he right. likes fish. I think it's his favourite. Prawns. He could just eat it as he's swimming yeah, along. Yeah, he could like, eat it. <laughs> that's how it's smeared in whale blubber to tempt them in. And then... <laughs> just like launches into a tuna and just takes it. There we go. Um, anyway, George writes, do any of you lads like football? I appreciate there's a lot to dislike with modern sport, the modern world in general, but apart from Max's odd bit of Cambridge exuberance, I've never got the sense that most of the regular pundits on Football Weekly enjoy the thing they get paid to cover. I think we like it. Yeah, I love football. What, what's, I've got, I got asked this question the other day, actually, and I think, you know, it's something that I obviously work on five or six days a week uh but i I tell you what going to a match that's a great feeling that really still enjoy going to matches um next monday i'm going to the playoff final with my sheffield wednesday supporting dad that's what it's all about yeah of course i love football it just happens to be the thing that i've worked in for nearly 25 years now and of course you have to take each story each um development as it comes look at them 
and you don't necessarily have to be a happy, clappy cheerleader for it all, because a lot of it, as we've discussed in this podcast already, might might not be that nice. But ultimately, um, football at its best, uh, a game, a, an exciting match, uh, you know, a, a drink and a laugh with your mates, it's the best, right? That's what it's for. Yeah, I mean, I think that if you work in it, the magic goes a bit because yeah. sometimes I don't want to watch, you know, Middlesbrough v Stoke, right? With all due respect to those. I, I like watching League One. <laughs> Obviously, like, they know I watch League One, right? I watch Cambridge games. When the Champions League is happening, I have the Cambridge games on. Like sometimes you just go, you know, it's your job, right? Sometimes you just can't be fucked to go to work. Excuse my language. Um, but you are aware of the privilege of it completely and how and how lucky you are to, to, to be in you know, that position. And I think sometimes you just need, there are always moments, I think, that may remind you why. So Cambridge staying up when Barry and I were on the radio, like it was like a sort of quasi-religious experience for me. Like by the end, I was just so exhausted and so sort of bereft, I'm not bereft in a bad way, but just like there was nothing left of me. And I sort of sat in silence in this radio studio and just sort of welled up and just, and I remember those three days of when, you know, Vincent Company scored that goal for City and then Liverpool beat Barcelona the next night and then Spurs beat Ajax the next night. Just being like totally broken, just thinking I can't, this was so extraordinary. Like you wanted to talk to somebody about this. But at the same time, I'm, I, I am sometimes conscious, Baz, that we, you know, that, that fans listening, they haven't been ground down because it's not what they've been doing for their job, right? I suppose. I mean, we do get that question a lot. Do you like football? You know, all you ever do is complain. But we're not cheerleaders. Uh, we have to shine the light into the dark corners and recesses of the game. You know, I like football. I like watching Sheffield Wednesday come from four goals down to turn a playoff semi-final around and win, winning on penalties. I like going to watch Dulwich Hamlet and having a nice burger and a few pints or uh, a souvlaki wrap. But I don't like the fact that Newcastle are owned by Saudi Arabia or that Manchester City are owned by Abu Dhabi or that PSG are owned by Qatar or that Manchester United might soon be owned by Qatar. And I don't like seeing players reduced to tears on the pitch because hundreds of if not thousands of fans are, are racially abusing them you know who who does like that it's it's because it's really unpleasant so uh yeah i like football but there's lots of stuff about football and around football that i hate i don't know for me football's like um it's like a family member right remember it's a member it's like, you know you love them unconditionally and I love football unconditionally. There, are t I, I go through phases where I don't like it very much, but I still love it. Uh, and and it's you know it's also a family member with, I guess, quite gross personal habits. Um, that's probably how I'd, that's probably how I'd put it. We talk we talk about the highs, you know, Sheffield Wednesday, you know, coming back from four 0 down, and you know that you know the, the company Liverpool Tottenham week and World Cups and and the the, the emotional highs you go through there. Um, for me, it's like the it's the stuff. It's the kind of the morass that 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 gets forgotten. But you you end up watching and consuming and talking about all like there's just so much of it. And I think there could be a little bit less. 
and I think over time, what what I've I've got worse at, and what what you guys actually are much much better at than me, is maintaining an interest in that you know in the kind of the nuts and bolts stuff, the everyday stuff, um, the the one all draws where something interesting happens uh, at the end, or you know some fan does something silly, you know. There's that that's the stuff I find it I find it harder to care about, um, and. I no longer will just, you know, sit on my sofa on a Thursday night and watch anything. Um, that's 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 I guess a, a way in which I've changed over over the years. When I, I used to watch anything and everything, and now I think I've got a little bit more balance to my life. So yeah, I love it. I'm not I'm not obsessed with it like I used to be, um, but you know, it's family, right? Paul says to Max Barry and the team, I was listening with interest to your discussion about time-wasting. I'm always intrigued how kids pick up on things the pros do. I was recently watching my daughter's under-14s team in a tournament and they were 1-0 up against the team at the top of their group. Every time our keeper got the ball, she diligently fell on it to claps from one group of parents and exasperation from the other. She capped off a fine display when with seconds remaining, the ball had trickled over the line for a corner. She walked towards the ball ahead of an opposing player as if to collect it and sportingly hand it over. She instead proceeded to smash the ball into some nearby undergrowth 20 metres away before turning around and looking innocently at the referee. Obviously, I can't condone this behaviour, but I have voted for this keeper in the player of the season poll. Please do the excellent work. What is a brilliant pod? Thank you, Paul. Uh, Dave says, how did Weston McKenney's long throw and Rodrigo's volley sit with the John Bruin get it launched movement? Well, the long throw, to me, is that legal? Because it's got this sort of twist in it. Mm, Sidearm. It's almost like, um, you know, like a basketball-y sort of... Yeah... I'm not sure that. I mean, was... leads don't leads don't have much, John. We can't take away no, Weston McKinney's no. long throw for them. I mean, that's you know, they've got nothing, have they? I mean, you know, but um, yeah, and and uh, as soon as uh, Samuel Allardyce moved uh, into the West Yorkshire area, that was obviously going to be used. Well, I, I think with 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 respect to to Dave Challoner, I'm going to say Rory Delap was the long throw king. And I think I heard him describe his technique once, and he, it's very much a one-handed throw. So you got you're holding the ball with one hand, and you just rest you just rest the other hand on the ball. So it's a one-handed throw. That that was his technique. So you just need big shovely hands. I Who's the guy at Wrexham? He's good at the long. Ben Tozer. Yeah. Yeah. He's really yeah, they good. They are yeah. good, aren't they? Because he can get it to the back stick. That's an extra. Oh yeah, that's that an extra. Is. I mean, that is. That's class, that. It's gravy, isn't uh, yeah, it? Yeah, Absolute yeah. class, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, that is class from a, you know, dirty punt-out flick-on fan. Um, uh, anyway, uh, Terry, on the subject of great throwing goals, surely Dean Saunders from a throwing is the greatest ever, yes. Was he at Sheffield United when he threw it against the keeper's back and then just side-footed it in? I mean, that's genius, isn't it? DeLacy says, what's John's favourite song by the Smiths? R.I.P. Andy Rourke. Two songs that Andy Rourke sounds great on... Uh, Barbarism begins at home, where he does a sort of full sort of Bernard Edwards chic sort of freak out, which is really good. And Well I Wonder, which is on the same album, Meet is Murder, where he sounds very good, very delicate, great player. R.I.P. Andy. Brian says, if offered, would you and Barry become the new joint hosts of Soccer Saturday? If they don't want Barry, would you dump him and do it solo? Uh, Barry, are you interested? I, I wouldn't be able to do it. I'm incapable of. Like on the radio, I have to tell our producer not to talk oh, yeah. to me. You can't be told anything. 
while yeah. I'm talking because I just I can't listen and talk at the same time, so I would be useless. Yeah, but you could sit next to me. I could do the nuts and bolts. You could just be there for or you know chip in with the odd the odd acerbic comment. comment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you make a living of it. Uh, quite far away to be honest, but I'd be interested to you know I'd listen to offers, but no, of course. Um, we sort of think Chapa's going to get that gig, isn't he? He's done some Carabao Cup stuff for them. Yeah. You know. He's, that, that 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 looks like one of those things where yeah, Chappers, let's face it, yeah. he's he's very good. I, I know Chappers is the hard Chappers is the hardest working man in sports broadcasting and arguably show business. But would would he want it? You know, I don't know. It's like would Harry Kane like to go to Manchester United? Where is Soccer Saturday now? Is Soccer Saturday isn't what it was ten years ago? Is it? You know, <laughs> I, I, uh, hard to say. I could ask him. Well, I mean, there's a vacancy on this morning, Max. So I think you'd make an wow. excellent. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Ian has got in touch on, on that subject. Ian said, uh, "Who I worked with on Soccer AM. Uh, uh, he works in sound. He says thanks for not absolutely going to town on Peterborough. You did do a catwalk once. Um, I remember playing it. He was uh, he was playing the theme. He said I he, he sound mixes this morning. I could be your in. We could go full circle. So there is a possibility. I don't think you could. I mean." We discussed it yesterday. I don't think I'd be very good at this morning. Barry, you I'm really not sure. <laughs> be the perfect spot for you. Cy says, Cy Lloyd, the journalist, says, should high performance be on the national curriculum? Johnny. This 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 man is very dangerous. And you know, I I've I've said this I've said this to you before, and I think people don't people don't realise how 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 far these people can get while they're still people are still laughing at them. They would think, ha ha, this guy's funny. Oh, he does this thing about his A levels every year. Uh, the reason he's dangerous is that he 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 basically reduces in a very convincing way. He reduces um, all problems in the world to get up earlier, get out of bed earlier, to improve yourself, adopt a high performance mindset. You know, and essentially you ignore all of the structural and systemic and societal uh, reasons why people have issues with their lives and uh that's why he's dangerous and like trump uh you know he needs to be stopped before he he becomes he becomes too powerful (laughs) i just add do we need to add well i get up very early at least five mornings a week not five o'clock early but six o'clock early and (laughs) done me any good And, and like most of us scroll through our phone until we get hungry (laughs) <laughs> until, until <laughs> another smaller human wakes you up is it the message isn't like like work hard you know and go for it like you can do anything like that's not a terrible sort of message to send well well it, it, well, but, it sort but, of is but it doesn't if guarantee it's, if it's doesn't, completely it's, unrealistic <laughs> yeah, yeah it doesn't guarantee success. never take no for an answer there's questions about that is it yeah i've always thought that you know, people said that to me when I was trying to get. You know, if you if you if you write to Radio One and say, "Can I do the breakfast show?" They say, "No, don't turn up at Radio One to do the breakfast show." <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not speaking from experience. It's very unlikely they'll say, "Well, I said you said don't take no for an answer." All right then, sod it. You can come in and do it. Uh, anyway, uh, that'll do for today. Uh, thank you, John. Cheers, Max. Thanks, Johnny. Look, we're, we're all as humans, we're all fundamentally connected. That's what I believe. I believe we, you know, we we achieve our best work working together. And th- for somebody to say, you know, you are the the architect of your own potential. You are, you know, it's 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 Nietzsche adjacent at the very least. <laughs> anyway, thanks, Max. Thanks, Barry. <laughs> 
of a weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stevens. This is The Guardian.